Well, if you will, open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Uh, if you have one of those uh, handy sermon cards, you'll know that the titles were not included on the most recent sermon card that you received. But the title of this morning's sermon is this, from John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. The righteous judgment of the sacrificial judge. The righteous judgment of the sacrificial judge. Well, if you will, turn with me to John chapter 7. We'll read those verses and then we'll pray again for the preaching of God's word this morning. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us spiritual eyes, that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray this morning that your preaching come not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction we pray this in Jesus name Amen well if you know me very well you know that I'm a person of routine. My family would certainly testify to that. I like things to be done the same way all the time. I like things to happen at the same time. That's the way that I operate and function. I think I get it honest from my upbringing. If you've sat under enough of my sermons, then you know that I'm going to work hard to try to divide the text into three good points, and I'm going to 
give you what those are in a focus statement at the beginning of the sermon. I'll do that this morning. But more than I want to package this sermon this morning with a very sincere heart, I want you to have Jesus, the real Jesus. I want you to really have the real Jesus. I want you to know him. I want you to commune with him. I want you to be confident that the spirit of God is in you. And I want your life to reflect that. That's my desire. That's my heart. With that being said, this is where we're going this morning. This is our aim. This is our focus. To humbly be taught by the Holy Spirit. To know and believe the authoritative teaching of God. Through Christ Jesus, by joyfully carrying out the will of the Father to the glory of the one true God. That's a long statement. Let me say it again. You don't have to write it down. You don't even have to have it somewhat understood, but I promise we'll expound on it. Let me say it again. Our aim this morning is to humbly be taught by the Holy Spirit to know and believe the authoritative teaching of God through Jesus Christ by joyfully carrying out the will of the Father to the glory of the one true God. The sermon series in the book of John has been entitled Believe and Live. Very accurately, I think, summarizes the book of John for us. It has been Three weeks since we last heard from the Lord through John's gospel. We had a couple of one-off sermons. So I want to catch you up on the narrative that spills over in today's, into today's text. John chapter 7 verse 4, Jesus' brothers were speaking to him says, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That was Jesus' brother's desire, that he would show himself. And though we cannot be entirely sure of their motives, Jesus' brothers were encouraging him to go make himself known publicly at the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. I do think, however, that we can make a safe assumption that his brothers knew the feast would be an attraction which would draw, which would draw large crowds there in Jerusalem for whom Jesus could perform his miracles and make himself known. I think it's safe to assume that's what their thought was. Again, his brothers assumed in verse four that Jesus would want to take his popularity to the next level publicly. The way his brothers put it was, show yourself to the world. Of course, we remember how Jesus responds that now is not the time to go up and present himself publicly and that he intended to stay in Galilee at the onset of the feast. Again, Jesus was not holding off his attendance at the feast altogether as we'll find out in today's text, but rather was waiting on the timing of his attendance. That timing 
was ultimately to divinely delay his his crucifixion for the proper time. As Jesus states in John 7, 7, the world hated him. And the primary aim of the religious leaders in Jesus' day was to murder him, to preserve their social standing by murdering Jesus. And Jesus, knowing their hearts and the right timing for his death, delays his attendance to the feast. So we pick up in this story in verse 14 after Jesus' divine delay and he shows himself publicly in the midst of the feast. Verse 14 says, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. If you thought he was trying to operate in secret, well, think that no longer. You don't step into the temple in the middle of the feast and teach if you're trying to hide. Now I want you to notice two things about this verse, that Jesus goes to the temple and that he begins to teach. Can you imagine with me for a minute? Jesus, knowing what lies ahead, he knows what's gonna transpire in the days ahead. And he meticulously chooses this moment to step into the temple to teach publicly. He chooses his every move. And in willing, obedient submission to the will of the Father, Jesus goes to the temple to teach. And this is what it says about what he teaches in the very next verse. Verse 15 says, the Jews then were astonished saying, how has this man become learned? Having never been educated. Well, the first thing that I want us to see this morning in the text is that we should be astonished with Jesus. We should be astonished with Jesus, just not the way that the Jews in the temple were astonished with Jesus. This may be the only time I say this my entire life. But what Jesus taught in the temple that day is not important to the aim of John's gospel. All right, now hear me clearly, all right? I told my wife I was gonna say this last night and she looked at me like I was crazy. She said, I'm worried about your sermon now. What Jesus taught wasn't important to the aim of John's gospel. Every time Jesus spoke, what he spoke was important. But we're not given the details or the subject of Jesus' teaching in the temple in this text. We just know that he taught and that what he taught astonished the Jews. Obviously, every word that Jesus teaches is of supreme value. But it's not by accident that the subject of his teaching in this moment is not recorded or given to us. The main focus here is the response of the people who were present. That's what John wants us to see. Notice that the Jews were astonished. Their astonishment at least acknowledges that the teaching was uncommon. It was remarkable. It was noteworthy it wasn't 
your average temple teaching that the scribes and Pharisees had consistently given the people. No doubt that among the Jews taking in Jesus' teaching with astonishment, there were scribes and Pharisees and priests. Their astonishment caused them to remark, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Again, it's clear by the content of the question that there was an acknowledgement that Jesus was learned. There was no denying that the teaching of Jesus was quality. It had great understanding of the scripture. He had command of God's word and the application was impeccable and they knew it. There had to be a source to this great teaching. And they were astonished. They knew Jesus to be the son of a carpenter. They also knew that he had never entered into one of their schools or spent time under one of their famous rabbis. And despite this, they could not deny that Jesus' teaching was exceptional and unique. D.A. Carson says it this way, he hung no diploma on his wall and boasted no rabbinic letters of recommendation. Yet, Jesus' teaching excelled their own. Throughout the gospels, we find that there are people who humbly sit at Jesus' feet and learn. But we also find that there are those, when Jesus speaks, they want to debate or trap him or argue or hurl insults to discredit him. Well, I wanna give us a piece of application as we look at verse, 10, verse 15. I want you to be careful that you don't become pharisaical in your approach to God's word. Well, how would we do that? Like we're on this side looking back at the mistake of the people in this setting. What I mean is, don't be so entrenched in your line of thinking that you miss when God is teaching you something. See, Jesus spoke something in this moment that was beyond what they had previously received in their teaching, and that included the teachers. And rather than be one of those humble people that sat at his feet, they're astonished not at the good teaching that they were receiving in order to soak it in, but they were astonished because they were confused because they couldn't understand how he could teach this without an education. They missed it. They were entrenched in their way and they missed the spirit of God at work in their midst. So let me ask a question. I said the first point was to be astonished with Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus astonish you? Does Jesus astonish you? Does his teaching astonish you? I'm not asking if you're familiar with it. I'm saying, does it astonish you? Have you meditated on Jesus' teaching recently until you were astonished? 
Did you look at it again to see what sets this word apart from all the other books, even books written about this book? What sets it apart? What makes it so astonishing? And have you meditated on that? As is often the case, the religious leaders of Jesus' day ask a tremendously accurate question. How? How? Has this man become learned? It's a great question that they need to know the answer to, that we need to hear the answer to this morning. The second thing that I want us to see is the answer to this question that Jesus gives them. Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Again, you can see with your own eyes, but there's two important parts to Jesus' answer. My teaching is not mine. My teaching is the Father's. Well, those are, to, in my opinion, those are two distinct admissions that we want to address individually. They certainly fit together. They go together, but we want to pull those apart for a second. Jesus exemplifies for us very plainly that he did not teach from himself or out of himself. Well, let's, let's admit something that we all know to be true right now. If there ever was a man who could teach in such a way, Jesus was that man. He could have teached from him. He could have taught, sorry, from himself. Don't let me teach your children English. Teach them. Jesus taught not from himself. Many today learn, teach, and function from a position of themselves, of themselves. What is meant by teaching from yourself? What does that even mean? When we learn or teach out of our own experience, when we learn by what has happened to us or by insights that we may have gained through experiences in life or events that we may have endured from our own family dynamics, from our educational background, from the community in which we live, or maybe even good books that we've read along the way. All that can lead to learning and teaching from yourself. Then we take from our learning experience and apply them to what we communicate to other people. If we do not like Jesus, like Jordan preached last week, empty ourselves before God the way Jesus emptied himself, we will be teaching from our learned experiences and giving others something less than real spiritual food. Emptying yourself is part of giving God to others. Emptying yourself is only half of what Jesus communicates in this moment, though. He communicates that his message is not from him, but from the Father. From him who sent me, or his who sent me. Jesus modeled not only emptying himself and giving to those around him the spiritual words from the Father, the phrase Jesus uses is, 
his who sent me. This phrase both acknowledges the origin and authority of the words that Jesus spoke, but it also emphasizes Jesus' role in his teaching. Jesus is simply relaying the message of the one he has submitted himself to. He's bringing the message of God the Father. This is important as commentator Richard Phillips says, only God has the authority to speak on matters of life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and eternity. See, lots of men can spill all kinds of wisdom about lots of things. Pick your favorite subject, your favorite category, your favorite topic of discussion, and you can find good people saying good things about whatever it is that you want to hear. But there's only one expert on the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's only one expert on things pertaining to salvation. It's God himself. I certainly believe that if you do the first, that you empty yourself of your own words and your own predispositions, the second, speaking the God-given words of life, can follow. This is what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Everything that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, Jesus does or did perfectly. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a second. Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. Whose testimony? God's. That's all Paul wanted to do was give them from God, testimony. For I determined to know nothing among you, no other subject except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. Yet, we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is in him? So also the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. 
Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. But a natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's what Paul writes. And I'm saying that everything that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Jesus did. Jesus did. Let's apply again in this moment. Are we speaking God's wisdom? Are we hearing God's wisdom? Are we experiencing in our own life a demonstration of the Spirit's power? Or are we experiencing the power and wisdom of man? Which one is it? Are our eyes and ears and heart receiving what the Lord has prepared for us? Or are we taking in the ineffectual words of men? Which one is it? Are we soaking in spiritual thoughts from the sovereign of the universe? Are you gaining spiritual discernment wrought from God and God alone? As the text suggests in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, do you have the mind of Christ? Listen, this was Jesus' approach. His teaching was not his own. He did not soak in anything that didn't come from the Father, nor did he ever teach anything outside what the Father had instructed him. Why should we take a lesser approach than the king of kings. Why should we take a lesser approach than Jesus? Why should we ever fill our mind with anything outside of scripture? The very words of God. Well, there's a third thing that I want you to see. I want us to not only be astonished with Jesus, But I also want us to learn from the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, I want us to discern the true words of God. Look what he says in John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus really applies the pressure here to the listeners in the temple. And that same pressure should be being applied to us now. He is essentially drawing a line between those who have spiritual ears and those who don't. Those who walk with the Lord and those who don't. The same should be true of us in this room today. The test of the clearness of your spiritual ears to hear the words of God, he gives to us. He tells us what it is. He says... 
do you have a willingness in you to do the will of God? Is it there? Is it in you? Let me say it again. Do you have a willingness to do the will of God? He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, if you're willing to do his will, then he says, you will know the teaching of God. You will know it. You'll know whether it's from me or from God, from any other man or from God. You'll know the difference. Proverbs 3, 5, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Look with me at the text. Here's what happens. If you spiritually receive from God, that's my prayer. That's what I was trying to communicate before I gave you my little focus statement is I want you to have Jesus. I want you to commune with him. I want the spirit to be alive and at work in your life. So that as you spiritually receive from God, his words, you both will know in your mind and understand in your heart what has been communicated. When was the last time your heart understood what God was saying to you? And in turn, you gladly believe the evidence that such spiritual faith has transpired in you is that you will joyfully act in a manner that is consistent with what you have heard from God. So often, I'm lumping myself in this boat, I hope you know and understand. So often, we know and hear the truth of God, but our actions do not align. And what we're testifying to those around us is that I don't believe. I don't believe. To say it more simply, spiritual faith received from the true words of God will produce glad-hearted spiritual obedience. In the text, the test of true faith is a man's actions. A man must be willing to do the will of God. What he knows and hears from the Lord will flesh itself out in actions. Your life will be consistent. You will act in a manner consistent with the truth of God's word if his spirit has indeed invaded your heart. However, a man will neither be willing nor even able to know the will of God apart from genuine God-granted faith. It's such a futile futile attempt for someone to pretend that they are in Christ and to inform and teach and instruct others when the life of Christ is not in them. It's a scary place to be. And I'm pleading with you this morning to know that you have the Spirit of God in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 highlights this for us. The God-given ability to discern whether the word spoken from God or some lesser source is the willingness to do what is right in light of what has been spoken. This is what I mean. Look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 2. I'll just read it. It says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, 
For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's what Paul says about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They crucified Jesus because they lacked God-given, spirit-illumined discernment. They didn't know he was Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the true Son of God. They thought him to be something else, someone else, because they lacked discernment. These are men, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who memorized the Torah. They meditated on it. They taught others. And Paul explains exactly what that is in Romans. It's the blind leading the blind. They had no discernment because the spirit of God was not in them. They were full of religious knowledge, but no Jesus. I hope you see the direct connection between hearing from God and joyful obedience as evidence of real spiritual discernment. So the question is, does your faith lead you to glad-hearted obedience? Because if your faith leads you to glad-hearted obedience to God, then you have discernment. You have spiritual discernment because spiritual discernment is hearing from God and obeying him. That's what discernment is. There's a fourth thing that I want us to see this morning in verse 18. I want us to seek the glory of God. This is what Jesus says. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Here's the real exposing mark of men. This is where Jesus turns from teaching that if they listened to would have exposed them to Jesus making it plain that he is exposing them. This is the real reason Jesus' opponents could not hear the words of God in Christ Jesus. Spiritual pride. Pride. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride can come in many forms, but they all have the same devastating aim and result. The aim of spiritual pride is one's own glory. And we all are tempted by this. Don't let me stand behind a pulpit this morning and pretend that I'm not. The aim of spiritual pride is one's own glory. And the result is the, listen to this, is the warranted opposition of God. You want glory for yourself? Then go set yourself up in opposition to God because that's exactly what you'll earn. Fighting for glory for yourself puts you in opposition to God. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Unbeknownst to the prideful in heart, they set themselves in opposition to God. They put themselves in a position where they cannot discern the true word of God, making them vulnerable to their own false beliefs, to others' false teaching, to becoming heralds of false gospels. And all this sacrifice for an empty pursuit of self-glory. Those who seek their own glory will sink to whatever levels possible to gain followers that will bring glory to themselves. And their message will change with the crowd and their methods will adjust to the current situation. But none of them are grounded 
in the rock of ages. But Jesus, he didn't seek his own glory. He was the most glorious, beautiful treasure of heaven. And he was on display on earth. And his brothers were saying, let the world know who you are. And yet, he still did not seek his own glory. When Satan tempted him, Satan was tempting him to show his own glory. But Jesus, in humility, empties himself so that the Father might be glorified through him. What humility. What humility. But Jesus sought the glory of God. The one, the one who sent him. According to the text, there are two indisputable attributes that Jesus claims for himself that I believe are birthed out of the statement that precedes them. Jesus sought the glory of the Father above all else. And because Jesus sought God's glory and God's glory alone, two things were certainly true of him. He was true and he was righteous. Jesus' motives and message were pure. His message was from God. That's why it was truth. And his motives, his motive was the glory of God. That's why he acted in righteousness. Jesus says of himself in the text, not that he spoke truth, though he certainly did that, but that he was true. Jesus didn't just claim to be the truth, but he, he also claimed to be completely righteous. Think about that claim in the face of the Jews in his day, that he is true and perfectly righteous. This proclamation no doubt burned the self-righteous cohort who sought to confront Jesus. The contrast between Jesus, the righteousness of God, and the religious leaders, their own self-righteousness, were certainly being highlighted in this moment as Jesus spoke. And Jesus, under the authority of God, which they missed and couldn't see, spoke the truth. Again, I want us to apply here. Be careful. Be careful not to seek your own glory. God help us. This may not sound like a temptation to you upon the, your first self-assessment. Like, I'm not trying to steal God's glory. Be careful. Be careful. Ask God to expose your heart. It's a good and right prayer. It may feel dangerous, but it's good for you. Perhaps you have slowly allowed all your natural dispositions that we mentioned earlier to shape you into your own man. And now your focus is no longer the glory of God, but somehow has shifted to getting glory for yourself. Is your highest concern the glory of God? His church and His people. Or do your actions show that other things hold a position of higher rank? Things that you care about in your kingdom, in your glory. 
There's a fifth thing that I want us to see this morning. I want us to test, I want us to test the actions of our faith. Look with me in verse 19. It says, did Moses not give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? The very obvious teaching that Jesus does in verses 16 through 18 that we just looked at shifts into a pointed confrontation with his prideful listeners. He's turning the heat up on those in the temple. And though Jesus took great pride in, excuse me, the Jews took great pride in their ethnicity because they were the chosen ones who had received the law from God, Jesus points out the harsh difference between receiving the law and obeying the law. There's a big distinction between those two that Jesus is pointing out in this moment. Jesus knows that their ultimate plot was to kill him and confronts them not only with the plot to kill him, but with their inconsistent actions in light of the law. He just kind of lumps it all in and takes care of two birds with one stone. They were planning on being murderers to protect their position as experts on the law, which teaches you shall not murder. Can I repeat that? They were planning on being murderers to protect their position as experts on the law, which teaches you shall not murder. The hypocrisy. Well, let's be careful. Before we point out the so blatantly obvious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let's be careful with our own legalistic ways. Jesus is exposing their hearts here. Jesus says correctly that none of them, not one, has kept the law. So the law which they took so much pride in actually was condemning them before God. And though they were most likely some in the crowd that weren't scribes, Pharisees, or priests who may not have been a part of the plot to kill Jesus, the crowd certainly had those among their ranks who were a part of the evil plan to have Jesus put to death. And the response to their exposure in this moment where Jesus calls them out for their inconsistency, their inability to keep the law while trying to hold others to it, Their response was to accuse Jesus of demon possession. Let's change the subject. Let's put the spotlight on you, Jesus. Let's make a false accusation and see how you contend with it. But rather than combat their baseless accusation, look what Jesus does in verse 21. He further exposes their inconsistencies. Jesus answered them. Notice he doesn't say anything about the demon possession accusation that they just made. He says... I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus reminds them of the one miracle that we know he performed in Jerusalem in which they marveled that he speaks of here. 
Jesus healed the paralytic of 38 years on the Sabbath. So a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years is healed on the Sabbath. They can't dispute that the miracle has happened. It's been witnessed by too many. But their marveling was not because the man, if you remember the story, was crippled for 38 years, was suddenly able to walk. They marveled in anger that Jesus would break their interpretation of the conduct for Jews on the Sabbath. That's what they were marveling at. They were astounded, like they were at the beginning of this text, astonished that he would do such a thing. And again, Jesus continues to expose their self-righteous pride. Jesus then compares the two acts done on the Sabbath. Both would break their strict interpretation of the law. The action that Jesus took to heal the paralytic of 38 years and their actions would also be guilty of breaking the Sabbath law by circumcising the actions taken to circumcise on the eighth day of a young boy's life. Both of them were actions that would break the Sabbath. Both actions were not wrong or evil in and of themselves. It's just that they were done on the Sabbath. To heal a paralytic was a good deed. To circumcise the baby boy on the eighth day was also viewed as right. But the problem comes when those actions conflict with their interpretation of the Sabbath law. So then, how do they decide which action on the Sabbath was permissible and which one was not. Jesus adds a small parenthetical statement in his argument against the Jews in this discussion. I don't know if you saw it, but he says this. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. They took such great pride in the law of Moses. Jesus adds this parenthetical phrase to point out that the act of circumcision was not given to Moses as part of the law, but rather it was given to Abraham as a covenant sign. Therefore, circumcision was only formalized as law after its initial inception under Abraham. Because of this, the Jews allowed the act of circumcision to be permissible, or better yet, it would override the law of the Sabbath in their mind. Well, I think Leon Morris does a great job of explaining this best. He says, had they understood the significance of what they were doing, they would have seen that the practice that overrode the Sabbath in order to provide for the ceremonial needs of a man justified the overriding of the Sabbath in order to provide for the bodily healing of a man, which is exactly what Jesus did. The Jews' actions to circumcise on the Sabbath wasn't wrong, but their condemnation of Jesus healing the paralytic on the Sabbath was not wrong either, obviously. It exposed their inconsistency, how they were so quick to try to judge somebody for anything that they could possibly judge them for, and yet they themselves were guilty of the same thing. Jesus was comparing what the Jews did in circumcision and what he did for this paralytic. And if we want to compare the two, 
we should. They only performed a ritual on one part of the body that represented purity. Jesus, according to the text, healed the whole man. And I certainly think that included his spiritual cleansing, even though the text doesn't explicitly say that. He provided a purity for the whole man far beyond this little silly act that was permitted them as a sign of purity. What's the application there? Are your actions consistent with the truth of God's word? Have you become legalistic in any way in your treatment, not just of God's word, but of others in light of God's word? Oh, dear saints, listen to me. We're not far from the Pharisees here. We're not. It so easily can happen to us that we become legalistic, that we start applying judgment to others that we ourselves could not possibly hold up under. We just couldn't. Are your actions, are the actions of your faith consistent with one who walks with Jesus? Well, I want to conclude with verse 24. Certainly been alluded to In the leading of the service this morning from Tommy, Jesus concludes today's sermon. I think Matt prayed along these lines. Jesus concludes today's sermon text with an imperative statement for the Jews that is certainly applicable for us today. He says in verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is our last piece of application today. Do not judge according to to appearance. Translation, judge a man according to his heart, not his appearance. That's what Jesus does, right? That's what he says about David in the Old Testament when they're trying to identify the new king and they look at all of Jesse's sons and they line them up and one by one Samuel says, not him, not him, not him, not him. You have another. And Jesse says, there's the, the translation in the Old Testament the word hakatan, the worthless one, out keeping the sheep. They brought him in. It wasn't David's appearance, but his heart. It was his heart. We are to judge according to the heart, or to say it differently, judge according to the actions that reveal his heart. Because none of us have Jesus' wonderful ability to look into the heart of a man and to identify exactly what is there but we certainly can observe the fruit that are in keeping with a heart that is submitted to God Jesus so precisely exposes our inconsistencies that we would do well not to be pharisaical in our approach to others we should first test ourselves with the John 7 text that we looked at this morning as our measure the John 7 test of faith let me ask again Am I astonished with Jesus? Am I astonished with the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are my thoughts and my words birthed out of my own disposition or are they from the Father? Do you have the mind of Christ? Do my actions prove I have God-wrought, spirit-filled discernment? Do I live 
in joyful obedience to God? Does every aspect of my life reveal that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is there any evidence of pride in my life? If you're not sure, ask your spouse or a close friend. Do you seek glory for yourself? Are your motives pure? Do you judge righteously? Ask God to expose your faith the way that Jesus exposed the Jews in the temple. Ask Him to. Plead with Him to do that for your good. And obey John chapter 7, 24, command to judge with righteous judgment and be laid, be laid bare before the righteous judgment of God. Now let me say this. I titled the sermon, The Righteous Judgment of the Sacrificial Judge. The righteous judgment of the sacrificial judge. This is what we can say we know to be true about Jesus from this text and the rest of Scripture. He was righteous. And his judgments are righteous. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 19 says this, Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. This is the kind of righteous judge Jesus is. With righteousness, he judges and wages war. He has eyes like blazing fire and many royal crowns on his head. He has a name written on him that only he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and pure, follow him on white horses. And from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something about that righteous judge. All that magnificent, omnipotent power that we just saw in Revelation chapter 19 is true of the same Jesus who is sitting in a temple on earth as a man exposing the wicked hearts of men who desire to kill him whom he would allow to crucify him out of obedient Humble, emptying, emptying, excuse me, emptying himself, submission to the Father. So that he would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that on that cross death, the pure, righteous blood of Jesus would be spilled for your sins. He would become a sacrifice. The righteous judge would become a sacrifice. For sinful, rebellious men. The righteous judgment that we face has been satisfied through our sacrificial judge. But rather than hardening your heart like the Jews in the temple, let us this morning look to Jesus and marvel. Be astonished that Jesus gladly died in your place so that you might be saved and be broken and repent. 
believe and live. Live in a manner consistent with the reality that Jesus is God, proving that the Spirit of God and power of God is at work within you to the glory of God the Father. That's my prayer for you this morning. Let's pray now. Father, we pray that as we're with the Jews in the temple 2,000 some odd years ago, confronted by Jesus, pure, true, faithful, righteous Jesus, and they missed him. Father, don't let us miss Jesus today. Don't let us miss him. Don't let our entrenched ways of thinking cause us to miss Jesus. Father, I pray this morning for any in this room who have not bowed the knee to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would break their hard heart. Father, I pray that you would cause them to see their sin in light of righteous Jesus. And they would weep. Father, I pray for brokenness. Father, I pray for genuine repentance, that you would grant that today and that you would give them faith to believe that the one who died for them, Jesus Christ, can save them from their sins. Father, I pray that you would grant faith and repentance today. And Father, I pray for us as believers that we would not slowly slip into self-righteousness. Lord, Spare us, help us, expose us, Father, and cause us by your Holy Spirit to know and believe the authoritative teaching of God through Jesus Christ and that you would cause us to joyfully carry out the will of the Father for your glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.